You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Swords. Hello, my radio friends. Thanks for joining me today to hear more from God's Holy Word, the Bible. The Bible has quite a lot to say about swords, but first, a modern, true sword story, and it happened in Argentina. A certain Mr. Costa, and we'll call him Manuel, was at home and had gone to bed. In the early hours of the morning, four intruders broke into his home with the intention of stealing whatever they could find of value. Manuel woke up and grabbed his samurai sword and attacked the burglars, hacking pieces out of them. The intruders fled, but on the way they crashed their car as the driver was too injured to drive properly. All four of the intruders ended up in intensive care in hospital, some from the car wreck and others from injuries from the samurai sword. The article from which this story was taken did not say whether the intruders were charged with breaking and entering, nor did it say whether Manuel was charged for causing actual physical harm. It seems, however, that in Argentina, a householder has the right, by whatever he me- whatever means he has at his disposal, to protect what is his. Not all countries have the same laws about protecting one's person or property. Here in Australia, we have the protection condition known as equal force. In Manuel Costa's case, equal force would apply. The law would regard one one man armed with a sword to be approximately equal to four young intruders with the intention to seal, to steal. The world's biggest sword used in battle is the Scottish claymore. It was longer than a man is tall. It was 2.2 metres long and weighed about 10 kilograms. Claymores were usually long-handled to be used with two hands and were double-edged, meaning they could cut on both the forward and backstroke. Modern English has an expression, double-edged sword, meaning that something may have a favourable or unfavourable outcome. The Bible speaks about a double-edged sword. The reference is Hebrews 4.12, and it says this, The word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When you think about how a sword is used, it can cut, it can pierce. It is used as an offensive and defensive weapon. And in the case of where someone is tied up, it can slice through ropes that hold that person prisoner. 
Yet, here is Hebrews 4.12, where we're told that the word of God is more effective than any double-edged sword, even the claymore. How is that possible? Usually, a sword is used to cut or pierce flesh, muscle. But as the analogy is concerned, God's word goes beyond mere flesh. It goes right into the bone, entering places a sword usually does not reach. The word of God goes further than a sword. It goes into the mind, into the innermost thoughts, defining what is right and wrong. It goes even beyond what one thinks. It deals with motives and the reasons for those motives. And as well as that, the Bible sets and defines boundaries for our thoughts and actions. And here's an example. In Matthew 5, as part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, after stating that God's law, the Ten Commandments, is to be our standard of behaviour through all time, he goes into several of those commandments at a deeper level. Jesus explained that actions are the result of decisions we make and give explanations of why we make those decisions. I'll repeat it. God's word deals with what goes on in the mind. That's why it's described as a double-edged sword. It cuts deep. But you know, there is another powerful analogy here. Imagine someone is tied up as a prisoner with rope. A sword would quickly cut through the rope and set the prisoner free. Human beings have been tied up in sin. Sin binds people in its grip. Just as a sword would set someone free, so does God's word. It changes lives. It shows the way to live good, pure lives. It tells about Jesus, God the Son, who came to save us from our sins, to set us free. It shows the way of salvation. Not only is the word of God like a double-edged sword, but there is another sword simile mentioned in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, here's a question. Is the Holy Spirit the word of God? Well, as part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is just as involved in the salvation of mankind as the Father and the Son. Whatever God the Father says and whatever Jesus says, the Spirit also says, all are in agreement. 2 Timothy 3.16 declares this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, 
for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So to answer the question, no, the Holy Spirit is not the Word of God in written form. The Holy Spirit is the personality to lead people to an understanding of the way of salvation, including, sometimes, in unusual ways, different than just reading the Bible. But I want to make something very clear at this point. The Holy Spirit is never at variance with the Bible. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not say or lead to or require anything that does not agree with the Bible. I've heard of people who say that they've been led by the Spirit, yet what they claim to have been told is at odds with the Bible. Any spirit that disregards the Word of God or varies with what the Bible says is not the Holy Spirit. It's an evil spirit, or to put it bluntly, a satanic spirit. In 1 John chapter 4 and the first few verses, there is an admonition written by the aged apostle John. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. The plain implication is that there are spirits not from God. So what sort of test can one apply to know what kind of spirit might be influencing you? In verse 3, John writes, Every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. And I'd like to tie that test with the fact that any spirit that leads anyone to disbelieve or misapply the Word of God, the Bible, is not a spirit from God. The sword of the Spirit must be in harmony with God's Word. The tallest man living is in this day and age is Sultan Kozen in Ankara, Turkey. He first became the world's tallest living man in 2009 when he measured 246.5 centimetres, that's 8 feet 1 inch in height. By today's standards, he's a giant. He would need a big sword. The Bible tells about another giant, a Philistine warrior who is over nine feet tall, and that's just under three metres. This warrior was armed with a coat of mail and had a bronze helmet on his head, had bronze leg protectors, and carried a bronze javelin and a spear. The spearhead alone weighed 600 shekels, and that's nearly 7 kilograms in metric measures. One would think that this heavily protected, heavily armed warrior would be invincible. Besides that, he had an armor bearer 
to carry some of his weapons. This giant warrior was the Philistine champion. It seems as if in those days before a battle began, a single soldier would be sent out to fight against a single soldier from the enemy's side. It may have had something to do with superstition, inasmuch as which soldier won the duel would mean that that side would win the battle. Now, you wouldn't want to bump into this huge warrior on a dark night. His name was Goliath. The Philistines were camped on the opposite slopes to the Israelites of the Valley of Elah. Each day, Goliath would come out and taunt the Philistines. Come out, you dogs, and fight. We'll see who will win. Nobody in the Israelite camp was brave enough or foolhardy enough to challenge this hulk of a man. That is, until one day when a young man, a shepherd boy, came to the Israelite camp to bring some food for his brothers who were part of the Israelite army. He saw Goliath and heard the challenge and wondered why no one went out to fight the monster. Others in the camp said, Oh, anyone who fights this guy will be richly rewarded by the king. The reward meant very little to young David, but because he implicitly trusted God to protect him, he volunteered to fight the giant, although others tried to warn him off the idea. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 36 to 39, is recorded what David said to the king. Your servant, meaning himself, has killed both a lion and a bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. And Saul, the king, said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you, and we'll go on with the rest of this straight after the break. Oh! 
Though so many friends forsaken turn away, I keep pressing toward that land. And when death shall beckon me to leave this world, with the saints I'll fly away. You can have your fortunes on this world below, they will fade in life's short day. I'm a pilgrim. King Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. David descended down into the valley, picked up five smooth stones from the dry creek bed, and began to approach the Philistine giant on the other side. When Goliath saw him coming, he roared obscenities and curses at him, including this, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. You can read this in 1 Samuel 17, verses 43 and 44. Now, here's something important. David shouted back as he came closer. You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike, strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You can imagine Goliath's, Goliath's reaction. Infuriated that this mere boy would challenge and defy him, he charged forward, pushing his helmet back as he ran. David put one stone into his sling and whirled it around. Then, zing, the stone shot out and hit Goliath fair and square in the middle of his forehead that would normally have been covered with his helmet. The impact broke Goliath's skull, and the stone sank into his head. He fell headlong, completely unconscious. David came up to the now helpless giant, pulled his sword out of its sheath with one mighty swipe, 
and then lopped off Goliath's head. Aghast at what they had just seen, the Philistine army, ready to race forward into battle a few moments earlier, now turned and fled for their lives. The Israelite army, seizing this turn of events to their advantage, raced forward and pursued the fleeing Philistines, killing practically all of them. Now, I play golf. Each time I get a hole in one, the club's the golf club staff member presents me with a certificate. Up until now, I have nine certificates. If I could hit a golf ball like David sent that stone with his sling, I'd be able to wallpaper our house with hole-in-one certificates. Either David was a terrific shot, or God directed that stone to hit Goliath in the only vulnerable spot on his body. I'd like to suggest that although David may have been a good shot, God made sure that the stone hit its target. But the main point of this story is that although Goliath was a giant and equipped with protective armour and had a sword, spear and javelin, None of what he was or had was a match for God. David had God on his side. Goliath was no match for God. Gideon and his three hundred men faced the same sort of odds against the vast Midianite army that was about to attack Israel on another occasion the Midianites were completely routed. With God on your side, you are on the winning side. And this resonates with what the Apostle Paul had to say in Romans 8.31. He said, If God be for us, who can be against us? I'll read that again. If God be for us, Who can be against us? Now I know that many of you have had to deal with heavily armoured giants in your lives. Those giants may be sickness, even a life-threatening disease. You may have had battles against some bad habit or some sin that grips you in its grasp. You may be distressed with some relationship problem a financial problem or perhaps even an addiction. But, my dear listeners, you must realise that God is more powerful than any of those things that might trouble you. But you have to ask to seek his help. You must want to be free of that giant with a sword that's affecting your life and ask for God to free you of it. It's no good asking for help if you really don't want any change. To begin this talk with you today, I quote it from Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, 
and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of the Lord is more powerful than even a double-edged sword. That being the case, imagine how powerful is the one who gave the word. Ephesians 6.12 explains the kind of battle we as human beings are involved in. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Jesus fought this battle when he was here on earth, and he used the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And you can read about in Matthew 4, where Jesus was tempted by the devil, Satan. And in each case, when the devil tempted him, Jesus replied by quoting Scripture. As we take God's word into our lives and live by its principles and instruction, we have a metaphorical sword with which to defend ourselves. At the same time, we have an aid to help progress the kingdom of God. If we want to influence other people to follow the Lord, just sharing philosophical ideas is not enough. The Word of God is the final authority. It satisfies. And, dear listeners, if you live according to it, you'll be safe. It is the Word of God that shows the condition of mankind. The Word of God shows the way of salvation. It's the Word of God that reveals our Creator, and it's the Word of God that gives us assurance and hope for the future. So then, why do so many people who own a Bible read it so little? Regard God's Word as a map for your life. Read the map, and you will know where to go and what to do. To ignore it results in being lost. Well, all too soon we've reached the end of today's program. Please remember that God's Word is like a sword of truth. And until next time, I wish you much joy and peace. And may the Lord be with you.